It's not unusual for wealthy people to try to imagine what it might be like to grow up without money. But my guest on today's program says it is uncommon for them to try to imagine what it might be like to grow up without a family. And his new book chronicles exactly that life, his life in foster care, and his journey from a working-class town in California to the military, Yale University, and beyond. Rob Henderson is an American writer. His debut book is Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. Rob Henderson is my guest today on Lean Out. Rob, welcome back to Lean Out. Hey, Tara. Great to be here. Congratulations on the publication of your new book. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind couple of days, but I'm really uh, pleased with, with how things are going. It's, it's wonderful to have you on to talk about it. I think it's a really important book, which we will get to. But at the beginning of Troubled, you write that I've met some well-heeled people who have attempted to imagine what it's like to be poor, but I've never met anyone who has tried to imagine what it would be like to grow up without your family. I want to start on that point today because it's such a powerful one. Um, for context for listeners, your your mother was addicted to drugs. You did not know your father. Um, take us back to that time time in, in your life with your mother in Los Angeles? What, what do you remember about it? Yeah, well, I, I uh, in, the, in the early chapters of the book, I describe my experiences with my mother, my earliest memory of her being taken from her when I was three years old and placed into foster care. You know, now I have this very thick file full of documents from social workers and people who were involved in my case as when I was in the, the Los Angeles County foster care system. And, you know, I don't have memories of this, but, you know, based on these reports, my birth mother and I, we were homeless for a time. We lived in a car and then eventually we settled in this slum apartment in LA. And that was when some neighbors called the police because they heard some kids screaming in this apartment and the police arrived and my mother had been tying me to this chair with a bathrobe belt while she would get high and she would have visitors coming in and out of the apartment at all hours of the day and night, trading favors for drugs. And she was just extremely neglectful. I never met my father. My mother, uh, some a forensic psychologist asked her, where's Rob's father? You know, because you're not in a position to care for him. And she didn't even know who he was. And so I went my entire life not knowing anything about my father. <laughs> I knew, so my mother was from Seoul. She came to the U.S. as a young woman to study. And it wasn't until last year I took this 23andMe test and I discovered that I'm half Hispanic on my father's side. But, you know, that was something that I had never really known or never really thought that much about. But that's the only piece of information I have about him, really. And so I spent the next, uh, you know, once I was taken into care, I spent the next just shy of five years in seven different homes all around Los Angeles. And the foster care system is notoriously unstable. And I, I'm just curious if you can paint a bit of a picture for us. I mean, for people who are not familiar, what does that instability look like on a day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week basis? Well, I, of course, like it's it's it varies based on the particular child and the family and so on. But the experiences that I describe, you know, when I speak to other foster kids and other people who've aged out of the system and so on, I mean, it's not it's not atypical, especially in a place like Los Angeles, which is one of the most overburdened foster systems in the country. And so some of the homes I lived in had upwards of eight or 10 kids living in them. You know, I remember one home, there were four kids to a room. It was two bunk beds. So two kids on the top bunks, two kids on the bottom bunks. And there's just a... a an, overwhelming number of children who need placements and not that many parents available to provide care. And so, you know, essentially, a lot of the decision makers in the foster care system, you know, there's this kind of tacit acknowledgement that like, as long as the kid isn't actively being harmed, you know, it's better that he sleeps in a bed somewhere than out on the street. And so, you know, you have this, these situations where there's just too many kids uh, living in, in one space. I mean, but there were there were other homes where I had only I was the only child. I, I write about the final home I lived in where I was the only child. And in that case, the foster parent had, you know, the, my, my foster mother, she had her own agenda and she would take boys in and essentially, you know, use us for 
free labor around the house, doing chores and maintaining the yard. And so each home is different. And the whole experience was extremely unpleasant, not just for me, because I, I was changing homes every six months, sometimes shorter, um, sometimes longer. And so that cultivates this sense of extreme insecurity and mistrust. Um, I could never feel fully invested in any particular home that I lived in. But it was also difficult because especially the first few homes I lived in, I would make friends with some of the other kids in the homes. And this is natural, you know, you bring a bunch of kids together and they'll start to form friendships. But then one of my foster siblings who I liked would be taken and placed in a different home or maybe returned to their family of origin. And so it wasn't just that I didn't know where I would be living day to day and week to week, but I also wouldn't know if tomorrow would be the day that, you know, one of my foster siblings would be taken and placed somewhere else. And so it was just an extreme level of disorder and uncertainty and dread. And that does take a toll. I mean, I write about the first two times, three times that I had to change homes. It was extremely emotionally upsetting. and you know, I was just, I would just like completely lose control of myself and my emotions and I'd cry and, you know, I was four or five years old and it was just really hard. And then by the, I don't know, the fourth placement, the fifth placement, I stopped responding to these experiences and I just kind of blunted my emotions. You know, it was a sort of a, you know, in hindsight, it was probably a coping response uh, because People, you know, uh, even even adults in that situation would be extremely distressful. But for a little kid, you know, your body probably can't handle that much stress in such a short short windows of time. And so, in response, I just stopped feeling anything uh, and became very numb. And that took a lot of work later to uh, resolve. And and at eight years old, you were you were adopted by the Hendersons. This is a, a mother and a father and a sister in Red Bluff, California. And you wrote write uh, very movingly about your first birthday celebration with them and the sort of amazement of being given these gifts. And um, but after that, as as you describe in the book, you had a, a front row seat to the kind of family breakdowns that are happening throughout working class America. What 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 happened in that family? So, so I was taken into this new, I was adopted, taken into the, by this new family. It was a, my adoptive mother, my adoptive father, and their birth daughter who became my sister. And yeah, I was adopted. This was the late nineties. And, you know, at the time I wasn't aware of this. I was just this unsophisticated little kid. I was, yeah, eight years old, just while well, I was about to turn eight. And I write about my eighth birthday shortly after the adoption. And, you know, now that I've read and learned and spoken with demographers and sociologists and people who've been sort of tracking what's been happening to families across the country and the US and in the sort of the Western world more more generally. Yeah, there's been this massive divergence in terms of intact family formation, people who go to college, people who are more sort of white collar, upper middle class, families are as stable and intact as they've ever been. Whereas for working class families, you know, non college educated, more blue collar, family breakdown has been growing and increasing and it's pervasive. You know, when people hear about something like a, a 40% out of wedlock birth rates, and they see that as like an aggregate snapshot statistic, oh, four out of 10 kids, but that's entire, almost entirely concentrated among sort of poor and working class communities. So if you visit upper middle class neighborhoods, it's very rare to see someone being raised by a single parent or by parents who are divorced. It happens, but it's, it's, it's pretty rare. Whereas if you visit more blue collar working class areas, that's the norm now. It's very rare to see a kid raised by both of their parents, especially both of their birth parents. And so my adoptive parents, my adoptive father was a truck driver, never went to college. My adoptive mother was an assistant social worker. She had a job as a certified nursing assistant. She had different jobs, but she never went to college. And that was kind of the norm in Red Bluff, this kind of dusty working class town in Northern California. And they were married for, you know, they were together when they adopted me. But then about 18 months later, they divorced. And so from there, it was really difficult for me. My adoptive father stopped speaking with me after this. Uh, he was upset with my adoptive mother for leaving him. And that was his way of retaliating at her was to just stop speaking with me. And so I was raised by my adoptive mother, single mother for a time. And that was hard after never knowing my birth father. And then 
all of the foster homes and all of the different families I'd lived in. And then I thought I finally had this family. And then my adoptive father stopped speaking with me. And, um, you know, I was nine years old by this point. And it was it's just really hard. Um, it would be hard in general for any nine-year-old, but I think it was especially hard for me after all of those really upsetting experiences. And, you know, I, I use that story, my story, and the stories of some of my friends in Red Bluff who also had, you know, kind of broken and unstable family lives. I use these stories to kind of illustrate what's going on more broadly in these communities across the U.S., in a bit, I do want to talk about what's going on with young men in particular. But um, but before we get to that, the next chapter of your life at 17, you enlisted in the military, which gave you the kind of stability that you needed and and sort of set you on a good path after having gotten in some, some trouble as a teenager. Um, talk to me a little bit about your service in the Air Force and, and how that period shaped your growth. Post-divorce, there was a lot of family drama, more separations, more, you know, family emergencies, financial catastrophes. There was just a lot of this going on uh, all around me throughout my adolescence. And so by the time I was 17, final year of high school, I was just ready to get out of there somehow. I wasn't, you know, my grades were very poor. I graduated with a 2.2 GPA, bottom third of my class really unimpressive transcript. And so I um, you know, enlisted. It was a sort of half impulsive decision to get out of there. And so I had to have my adoptive mother actually sign this permission slip for me because I was still legally a child. I was 17 when I graduated and fled. And, you know, that was that was a good experience for me. I mean, it was in hindsight, despite it being not maybe the most well thought through choice, it was the right decision for me to just completely change my circumstances, my surroundings, the people around me, and being in this really rigid structure, you know, the military, every aspect of life is tightly regulated and controlled. And that's not uh, the right environment for everyone. You know, I, I don't think that it's like this fix all or this thing that everyone should do. But for someone like me, it was extremely helpful. And in a way, you know, that those parts of the book where I describe how the military sort of contained my impulses and channeled my energy and aggression into something more productive, you know, it is a kind of implicit defense of boundaries, of rules, of, you know, maybe maybe the sort of free-range childhood thing of no rules, no, never say no to the kid. Maybe that might work for families in which there's not a lot of danger and there's not a lot of crime and there's not a lot of opportunities for a kid to completely destroy his future. But for a kid in a poor working class, low income, high crime area, having rules is actually a good thing. Having boundaries and having caregivers and adults sort of monitor and provide oversight. And so I didn't have that when I was growing up, but I did have it in the military. And it was useful for me to just sort of calm myself and, you know, write about the young male syndrome, about how Ross culture, societies, historically, young men have been the most prone to impulsive and reckless behavior. It's the demographic more likely to commit crimes, more likely to take extreme risks and harmful and actions and so on. And so, you know, the military was a way for that, the, that energy to be limited. As you say that when you you were in the military, I mean, for those key years before 25, it, it also just keeps you busy. Like it keeps you totally yeah. occupied. You have to be at a certain place at a certain time. Like there's not that many opportunities to go down yeah. that path. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just uh, there's not there aren't very many avenues for you to. Uh, yeah. And, and even, yeah, just just taking up every every moment of your time you're on duty during these hours, but then off duty, you have these other responsibilities. And so it's just, and, and then even the the knowledge that violating the guidelines and the rules and regulations will result in very quick and certain penalties. So if you fail a drug test, and there's randomized drug tests, and you never know when you're going to get drug tested. But if you fail a drug test, you can get court-martialed, you'll go to military prison. If you're late to work too many times, that can happen. Like, it's just very clear, cut and dried. Whereas in the real world, if you're 18 or 19-year-old guy, and you're late for work a few times and you do a lot of drugs and you can essentially take a, a series of irresponsible and impulsive and reckless actions 
And it can take years before those consequences catch up to you. Whereas in the military, they make very clear, you know, if you do X, Y will happen. And so you just don't do X, you don't do those things. And that was really useful for me. I mean, you know, people will will ask me, you know, they'll say, you know, I read those parts of your book, or I hear about your life when you were a teenager, and I see how you are now. And it's really, you know, it's just surprising how much you've changed. And you know, on the one hand, people change anyway, you know, people in their 30s are very different than their teenagers in any way. But you know, I, I did undergo this sort of massive transformation in part because I was enlisted for eight years. I mean, eight years is a long time anyway, but that was during the most sort of formative years of my life, of any young man's life, between the late teens and the mid-20s. Um, and the fact that I was in that environment and I was being inculcated with certain kinds of habits and norms and customs and so on, it was really uh, helpful for me. And then you arrive at Yale, and this is the moment when the campuses were just starting to explode with some of these massive controversies. We talked about this last time that you were on the podcast. And, um, you know, one of the standout moments in the book is, is when a classmate tells you that you are too privileged to understand the harm inflicted by an email about Halloween costumes. Uh, what did you make of that moment? How did you absorb that moment? Yeah, it was at the at the time it was just completely mystifying. You know, I started at Yale in 2015. And that was, you know, sometimes they say I I saw the birth of wokeness. It wasn't really the birth of woke. It was really the birth of and wokeness spilled out of the universities. You know, Jonathan Haidt and other scholars have traced the origins of this new wave of political correctness to maybe 2011, 2012, but 2015 is when it caught like national attention and suddenly you know, other elite institutions began speaking about it and communicating about it. And it became a topic of broader conversation and discourse. But I was unfamiliar with all of this. Uh, you know, I'd grown up in foster homes and in this working class area, I was in the military. And then I set foot on campus in 2015, completely removed from any discussions around higher ed and free speech and academic freedom and all of that stuff. It was just not on my radar. And so I saw students claim to be oppressed or marginalized or they felt unsafe on campus because professors would write an email or because they heard an offensive opinion or because someone said, you know, they used a word that was outdated or something like that. And to me, it was just strange to hear students claim that an email could really cause harm. They These were the sons and daughters of millionaires in one of the wealthiest universities in the world in this bubble and they were indulging in this kind of emotional choreography of just like so put upon so uh beleaguered and the university in many cases would amplify it the, the presidents administrators professors like the adults you know the you know the students are adults too and i, I write about that too about like what the definition of an adult is depending on how much money your parents have and how old you are and whether you go to college or not. Um, because for me, a 20-year-old in the military was an adult, but then on campus, a 20-year-old was just a kid. And I just found that interesting how, you know, if, you're, if your family has a lot of money, you can be a kid until your 27th birthday and you graduate from law school. <laughs> anyway, so I'm, you know, at, finally I asked one student about this, about this email these professors had written and how she claimed it was offensive and harmful and I asked her about, you know, what was it about it that was so offensive? And she responded that I was too privileged to understand it. And I knew this female student had, had, um, you know, she grew up in Greenwich, uh, went to Exeter. You know, that's like a very common background for students at Yale or other, other Ivy League universities. And, you know, it's funny, like she didn't know anything about me other than, I guess, the way I looked. She knew a little bit about like, oh, I was in the Air Force before. She knew that, but she didn't really know how I'd grown up. And at the time, I was just kind of shocked that she would say that to me. But then I came to realize that, you know, they had developed this quasi-sophisticated, weird, you know, intellectual acrobatics around, okay, well, if you're uh, a member of this category or that category, then by definition, you've led a privileged life. And so for me, you know, mixed race, Asian, Latino background, I'm a cisgendered, heterosexual male, and therefore, I must have had a very privileged life, and I must not have had much hardship. And so, of course, I wouldn't understand why an email could cause harm. 
because I just, you know, I've, I've just been oblivious to harm, I guess, my whole life. And so eventually I would ask students about this strange logic that they, some of them would invoke. And sometimes they would say, yeah, of course, like the, the way that you look and your the categories, your sexuality, your orientation, your ethnicity, all of those things determine the life that you have and the experiences that you undergo. But then other times students would talk about lived experience and how lived experience was a valuable justification for expounding on social ills and remedies and how to resolve the challenges in society. And this was strange to me because it's like, okay, on the one hand, if you check these boxes of identity, then therefore we, we already know everything about you that there is to know and how, you've, how your life has gone. But then on the other hand, they're talking about lived experience as if actually it's not the identity boxes you check, it's actually what you experience in your life, the lived experience. And, you know, I've had some unusual experiences in my life and I would bring this up with students and try to identify what's going on with that contradiction. And one student told me it's, it's dangerous to ask that question. Another student told me your identity determines your lived experience. And, you know, at, at that point, I, I realized a lot of this is just nonsense. And a lot of it was just invoked for, well, one of two reasons. Either one, it was sort of intentionally manipulative, and students would invoke it as a way to shut down debate or to advance their own agenda. And then I think other students were less, you know, less, less calculating. They were just saying the things that they had sort of absorbed through osmosis and those were the things you need to say to maintain your reputation and to avoid being ostracized. It's just interesting how sort of oblivious to social class that whole milieu is. And I, this is something I really wanted to try and unpack with you, that your story is remarkable in that you are one of the rare people who has had an intimate experience with all of our society's classes, the poor and the working class during your upbringing, the middle class during your time in the military, and the 1%, the wealthy elites you encountered. Um, at university. And this is something that has always fascinated me. I, I spent the first years of my career as a music critic interviewing rappers, and some of them had had that experience of jumping from poor inner city neighborhoods and sometimes even prison into elite spaces with a lot of wealth and influence. And it, it is an incredibly rare experience and um, something I've on a vastly different scale, have felt a bit myself. Because my mom, when I was in high school, my mom was a single mom. She was a house cleaner. And um, she eventually went back to school, got a bachelor's, a master's, PhD, and ended up being a professor in my adulthood. So I have like a, just a tiny inkling about this, but I really want to talk about what this means. Like what, setting aside luxury beliefs for now, because we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but broadly speaking, what did that mean to move between those different worlds? Um, it was a strange experience simply because, you know, I was, I was just not, um, you know, so, so I read this book right before I started college called Class, A Guide Through the American Status System by Paul Fussell. And that was one of the most illuminating and interesting books I'd ever read because I had never thought about class that deeply before. You know, I, whatever, I grew up poor, working class and yeah, none of my close friends in high school went to college. There was one, one smart kid in my class that, uh, I was friendly with, and he did go off to college, but he went to a state school in a local state school in California. He didn't, you know, go off to the other side of the country and go to like this leafy residential campus. Yeah, he was like, like the, the typical college experience is like, you know, you go, you live close to home and you live near your parents and you have a part-time job and that helps to make ends meet while you pay tuition. And, you know, you don't live in a grand sort of dorm and and immerse yourself in college in that way that we see in the movies. And so the experience was, you know, it was, it was small things that I would notice. Uh, I, you know, so when I grew up, we would eat like generic food from Walmart or Food for Less. We would go to these kind of discount grocery stores. And then by the time I got to the military, like I remember the military, we would have like actual name brand snack foods. Like I would see Pop-Tarts in the dining hall or the dining facility, we called them. And, um, you know, or I would see, uh, yeah, like you could buy a real Coca-Cola, not a Shasta Cola. You know, I, I, had a, I had a house with some roommates later on. We lived off base. We moved off base. And, you know, my, my friends, my roommates, housemates, they, their parents were married. And 
that was surprising to me as well, that it was actually not uncommon that, you know, people that I was around, they had more intact families with less kind of histories of drama and addiction and divorce and all those kinds of things, the way that I had grown up. From the military, then I went to Yale, it became very apparent to me uh, that it, of course, money is a huge factor with regard to social class, but also family life. I tell this story in the book about how I discovered the vast majority of my classmates were raised by both of their birth parents, 90% of them. And I went back and looked at the statistics across elite universities in general, and that's that's common. You know, very, very rare for students at such universities to be raised by single parents or divorced parents and so on. And then interacting with them and learning about their opinions and having to, you know, I, I tell this story in the book too about keeping up with current events. That was new to me where I grew up, you know, working class communities, you know, they would read the local paper. We, we my, my mom and her partner later on, you know, they subscribed to the Red Bluff Daily News uh, local paper. We couldn't afford cable. So there was no uh, daily show with Jon Stewart. There was no CNN or Fox or any of these shows. And at the dinner table, we would just kind of talk about our lives or about personal stuff or maybe what's going on in the, in the town or the county. But I learned later that if you want to be a sophisticated member of the upper middle class, you have to sort of know what's going on on the other side of the world and geopolitical conflicts. And you have to have opinion about this social movement and 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 the recent latest fashionable op-eds and the latest think piece in this outlet. And I arrived on campus and people would ask me, hey, did you read this by so-and-so? Or what did you think about that event? And I'm like, I didn't even know that was happening. And gradually I would learn, oh, you're supposed to have a cursory awareness of the goings on and the happenings of the world. And I just thought it was funny that, you know, you hear this phrase, you know, it's it's good to be informed, you know, you need to educate yourself. And, you know, when my life was hard, being informed wasn't that important. You know, it's more about sort of day-to-day -day survival, paying bills, making ends meet. And then once my life was more secure and my future more certain than it had ever been, suddenly I was being told, oh, you have to be informed. You have to have opinions on these things. And to me, this was you know, maybe it's, it probably is, you know, true to some extent, it's good to know what's going on in the world. But to me, it was just as much a marker of class and of performing that social class of knowing these things and being an insider. And if you don't have an opinion on these things, or you don't know what's going on, you immediately mark yourself as a rube or an outsider or someone who is uncurious. And this is a, a bad thing to be if you want to attain some social mobility. Well, and that leads us into talking about luxury beliefs, this this term that you have coined. I think it is the single most useful concept in terms of understanding our era. Can, can you define that briefly um, for our listeners before we talk about specific luxury beliefs? Yeah, so luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the elite while inflicting costs on the lower classes. And uh, a core feature of a luxury belief is that the believer is often sheltered from the consequences of his or her belief. And I started to develop that uh, when I was in undergrad. So the term luxury beliefs itself, I didn't coin until grad school uh, when I was at Cambridge. But when I was at Yale, the idea started to take shape in my mind just through these interactions, through reading. I mentioned Paul Fussell's book. Um, I read uh, Veblen, uh, A Theory of the Leisure Class, Bourdieu and other sort of old school sociologists. And I would read modern empirical research in psychology, about wealth and status, and the desire for reputation and esteem. And all of these pieces started to come together. And I realized that luxury beliefs are essentially the latest expression of signifying one's position at or near the top of society. And one of the classic luxury beliefs is, is defunding the police, since many of the people who advance this kind of ideology are, are not living in neighborhoods where crime is an issue. But you also write about focusing on representation rather than actually helping marginalized people improve material conditions, that that is another luxury belief. How, how so? Yeah, well, I, I use this term, sometimes I call it trickle-down meritocracy, sometimes I call it trickle-down diversity, which is this idea that, you know, there's this preoccupation with representation at elite institutions. And the thinking seems to be that as long as the top 1% mirrors the demographics of society as a whole, so as long as the top 1% is 50% women and X% percent LGBT and X% percent Hispanic and so on and so forth, then therefore suddenly we have uh, advanced and progressed in society. And for me, 
this, you know, what is like, what is the connective tissue between the 1% being more diverse and, and actually assisting and benefiting those who are truly dispossessed and marginalized, who are at or near the bottom of society. And so I cite these statistics, for example, foster care, only 3% of foster kids go on to graduate from college and 60% of boys in foster care are later incarcerated. And that's, you know, that's like 60%. I mean, that's like the modal outcome for a kid in that environment. And I talk about my friends who I grew up with. I had five close friends, two of them went to prison. I had another friend who was shot to death. And so I was one, the only one of our friends who went to college and it's all well and good for me to go, but what does that do for them? Like, you know, if if I go off to, to get a seat at one of these fancy institutions, how is that actually benefiting those at the bottom or those whose lives haven't turned out so great? And it just seems like a misguided thing that, oh, like somehow if we just get people from historically marginalized groups in those seats, that those benefits will somehow trickle down to the rest of society and will elevate the rest of them. And the logic is akin to, of course, trickle down economics that, oh, if we just let the rich people keep all their money, then magically the poor will be better off. And it's funny because I think a lot of the people who believe in trickle down diversity would ridicule and mock trickle down economics. But to me, the logic between those two things is the same, um, that there's a lot more that these institutions could do with their in, in, you know, outsized endowments and their wealth and influence and prestige and the graduates of these places to actually focus on how to help those at the bottom instead of figuring out, you know, how diverse is the next president of Harvard going to be? You know, it's just a very sort of narrow-minded way of thinking about how to help the people who really need it. I want to spend a moment too on polyamory because there's a, a national conversation happening around that right now. And Brad Wilcox, uh, the author of Get Married, was was on the podcast recently. And we were talking about this new memoir, More, written by a Brooklyn woman who has an open marriage. And Rob, I read this memoir. It was so distressing. She was miserable the entire time. She was having really degraded sex. Her life was very stressful. Um, and yet the press presented her story as one of, of liberation, of sexual adventure. I mean, it was so bizarre to watch happen. Um, walk me through how your concept of luxury beliefs applies to the polyamory conversation. Yeah, well, polyam so, so luxury beliefs they, you know, again, they're, they're signifiers of status and the believer is often sheltered, not always, but, but essentially the, the idea, and I, I delve into it deeply in the book, but even when these luxury beliefs do inflict costs on the elite, the cost that is inflicted is typically much smaller, uh, than it would be if someone who was less fortunate were to adopt those views. And, uh, if the luxury belief was implemented into policy and, and into the culture, and so polyamory is just the sort of latest expression of complete uninhibited sexual freedom that was championed in the early 1960s and onward. And, you know, if you're upper middle class, typically what seems to happen is, you know, you experiment and have fun for a few years. But if you look at the sort of marriage rates and intact families and so on, uh, typically, what seems to happen is if you're a college-educated person, you spend those early years maybe dating around, experimenting, you know, and enjoying a little bit of that uninhibited freedom, but eventually they tend to settle down, get married, have kids, and so on. Whereas for the working class, that complete uninhibited sexual freedom looks very different when you don't have much in the way of economic resources or social capital or good role models around you. Uh, that's the other thing that I that I focus on here, too, is that... Um, if you're an upper middle class person and you're receiving these messages about polyamory and complete uh, sexual freedom and so on from pop culture and from the chattering class and from the media, you know, those things can look interesting and exciting. But when you look around you in your neighborhood, you look at your parents, your neighbors, your friends and so on, you see a bunch of married parents living a kind of conventional bourgeois life. And those are the role models you have immediately in front of you regardless of what messages you're receiving. But if you're in a working class community and you're raised by a single parent and nobody in your neighborhood knows who their father is and there's just a lot of chaos and squalor around you and you you actually have never seen what a healthy marriage looks like and then you turn on TV or you open a magazine or you listen to you know whatever, like pop culture and music and so on and all of the messaging around you also doesn't show you what a healthy relationship looks like. You're not getting it anywhere. 
And so that can also contribute to relationship instability. And so polyamory, I, I describe uh, th this anecdote, which helps to illustrate the broader sort of statistical research. I, a friend of mine told me that when he sets his dating app, so he's a student at an elite college, he actually just graduated, but when he sets his radius for his dating app to just the university, he says that, you know, something like a third to half of the female students he matches with, their bio says something like, you know, poly or polycurious or, you know, open, you know, looking for something casual, those kinds of things. And these are students in their, you know, early 20s. And then he says when he extends his radius to outside of the university, to the more sort of blue collar working class areas around the university, the women are the same age, early 20s, but they're not college students. They're just living in this, these neighborhoods. And he says about half the women he sees are single moms. And sexual freedom looks very different if you are in college or in grad school. And again, you've had good role models and, and taught, you know, what a healthy marriage looks like. But if you haven't had those things, often, you know, it just looks like a series of very difficult relationships. Maybe you're left with a kid, maybe two kids, and, you know, it just contributes to and exacerbates this divide in what families look like between the haves and the have-nots. I, I want to touch too for just a moment on the crisis with young men, this, this fall that we're seeing in education and achievement, in employment, in the rises in deaths of despair. This is something we've covered on the podcast a lot, something that's touched my own life. Um, Jordan Peterson, I wanted to raise him. Jordan Peterson is pretty much reviled by elites in Canada. Mm -hmm. And yet every young man I know, um, actually every man I know without a college degree, uh, really admires him. And he has been a surrogate father figure for a ton of males. I know he's played something of a mentorship role for you and blurbed your book. Um, what do Canadian elites not understand about Jordan Peterson? Uh, I, I try to uh, avoid anything Canadian. Uh, so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, don't, I don't actually... <laughs> I actually don't know that much about, well, so the only, I mean, it's funny, the only thing I know about Canadian elites and stuff is like sometimes Jordan or, you know, uh, so, some, like Michaela Peterson, his daughter, or Michaela Fuller, I guess now, you know, they'll retweet, or, or you, like I'll see you retweet something from Canadian media. And that's like all I, the only picture I get of Canadian media. Um, but, you know, I'll just take it as like Western media elites, US elites, you know, the way that they treat Jordan. It's, you know, I think that it's, I mean, it's strange. There's this uh, almost willful blindness to what's going on with young men. And, and and if you do appeal to young men, that somehow there's something wrong with you or that you're to be held with suspicion. Um, you know, if, if most of your readers or admirers or viewers happen to be young men, that's like, that's like weirdly used as like an insult against you. You know, if like a journalist goes to a Jordan Peterson event, I've seen them write things like the audience, you know, most of whom were young men as if this was like, Oh, how horrible you know, that young men might be listening to this guy. Um, I don't, I don't know what it is that I guess, I guess the, I'm trying to like put myself in the, in the shoes of some, you know, very left-wing cultural critic would say, historically, men have been in power, something, something patriarchy. And now that, what, now, now that things are reversing and going in the other direction, young men feel worried or fearful or angry. And um, I, I don't know. There's there's almost a, a disconnect there that a lot of these people believe in this idea of toxic masculinity and this belief that young men need to be reformed. And uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, I, I think it, it's actually happened to some extent. I think that young men have sort of learned and, you know, there was probably a lot of good that came out of some of these movements around I don't know, me too, and concern around assault. and all, Because there was a period, and I I'm personally, I actually lived through some of this, of like, I came of age just before Tinder took off. And, you know, like the late 20, the late 2000s, early 2010s, it was like the Wild West in terms of dating, in terms of nobody knew what the rules were. That was kind of around the age of like when the pickup artist thing was still kind of mainstream. I think it is to some extent, but it's kind of weird now. But back then it was like, you know, hooking up and I don't know that was like the weird era of like girls gone wild and like complete licentiousness and naturally there was going to be this backlash and me too and all this stuff because you know that's just how these things tend to go uh the pendulum swinging back and forth but someone like Jordan to me is he's a 
I mean, clearly to me, at least his heart is in the right place. You know, he's an academic, he's a professor, he's been thinking about these issues for decades. And, you know, I, I read somewhere that, you know, if you're going to marginalize and, and try to subvert Jordan's message, then young men are just going to look elsewhere. And now you're seeing people like Andrew Tate and other sort of poisonous TikTok influencers sort of exploit and capitalize on young male anger. Whereas someone like Jordan, I think, is is much more thoughtful and reflective and considerate in the way that he thinks about these issues. Um, and it's a real mistake because if young men don't have a mentor or someone to look up to, if they don't have fathers, you know, naturally they're going to be drawn to older males who are providing something that helps them to make sense of their world. I mean, I had a little bit of this when I was growing up, you know, I didn't have a father and I was searching for guidance in my life. and. You know, I, I found it sort of indirectly, sort of pieced it together, and that was one reason why I joined the military. But young guys, um, what do they, I mean, what do people expect? What do Jordan's critics expect? I guess the question I would ask is, who, who is an acceptable person for young men to listen to? You know, if uh, one of these critics had to appoint someone or approve of someone and say, that's the person who young men should be getting their information from for how they should behave and live their life and what their ambitions should be. I would be very curious to hear the answer to that. It's such a good question. Um, just, to, just to close, I want to talk briefly about your response to, to the book launch. You've gotten a lot of press. You have had endorsements from very respected public intellectuals, including John Lewis Gaddis and Jonathan Haidt. Um, this is coming out at a moment when you have quite a large following, 140,000 Twitter followers, at least 30,000 subscribers to your Substack, which I understand now is makes a living for you. And yet you wrote recently about the difficulties that you and your publisher had in securing bookstore events for your book launch. Um, how do we think through that dynamic? Yeah, well, it was weird. Um, I didn't expect to have such a difficult time with this. I remember last year, once my publisher and I, my agent, we all sat down and thought, okay, you know, how do we like book positioning and these kinds of things. And we thought, okay, let's do a little tour. Let's do maybe a small one and, you know, get a bookstore and invite some readers. And I have a bit of a following, so I could probably get some people to turn out. And then um, we emailed bookstores in New York and San Francisco, and none of them were interested. Um, some just flatly declined, others ignored, we followed up with them, some of them did eventually get back and say no. And it's funny, because I looked at the schedule and the um, uh, other authors that these bookstores were hosting. One of them was the author of more, uh, actually, two of them, I think, <laughs> were hosting her. And, uh, and they were hosting other sort of small time. I mean, look, honestly, I would look up there. Like some of them did have a, uh, they occupied a position in legacy media. They had some columnist position, but I'd look them up and they had whatever, you know, on the order of 50 to hundred followers, not much going on online, not much of an online footprint. And honestly, I would be surprised if they were able to get many people if, uh, to, to show up to one of these events. And I figured, you know, my publisher also did Britney Spears' memoir. And someone like Britney is just too huge. She's not going to speak at a bookstore. Uh, and then there are authors who don't have much of a following at all. And, you know, okay, they could speak at a bookstore, but I just don't see many people showing. I, I figured, and, you know, maybe this is too self-aggrandizing, but I figured I was kind of like that right, like kind of mid-tier person who could, you know, get a few dozen people to show up somewhere and do a book signing or a book reading at a bookstore. Like that's kind of like a good venue for someone like me, I thought. And yeah, it just didn't work out. Um, I spoke with other authors, other people in the publishing industry and thought, you know, I asked them, like, what do you think is going on here? And a lot of them said, you know, two possibilities. One is just they're not receptive to your message. You know, they they spoke in terms of, of you know, your your message. You know, they, they didn't like the idea that some foster kid who had this hard scrabble upbringing is now talking about the importance of responsibility and family and all these kinds of things. And these are kind of conventional opinions, you know, outside of the elite, you know, talking about the importance of agency and focus and self-discipline and all those things. Um, but it's not fashionable to talk about those things among the elite. And then the other possibility I heard for why I was frozen out of the bookstores was because um, 
yeah, my uh, affiliations. You know, a lot of these places don't like Jordan Peterson. They don't like JD Vance was another one who blurred my book. And so they see those names and it raises a red flag and they don't even want to know anymore about me. They're like, that's enough that this guy is toxic or something. And it was really difficult for me because I grew up in a town, Red Bluff, the one that I was adopted into. We didn't have a bookstore. There was one store in town that sold these kind of, they had a couple of shelves where they sold these dusty, tattered old books that I would visit. And I remember there was the closest bookstore, the, like the closest Barnes and Noble. And there was a, was there, I think there was a Borders too at this time before they all closed down, um, was 40 minutes away. And every once in a while, my mom would take my sister and I to a Barnes and Noble or something. And that was like a huge day of like, wow, I can go to a real bookstore. And, you know, so I always thought of bookstores as these special places. And it was just surreal to me that I might have the opportunity to do a book signing and speak at one. And so when I couldn't, it was just more disappointing than I'd anticipated. But, you know, fortunately, we've managed to secure other venues. And I did this event at the Village Underground with Jesse Single uh, a couple days ago. We're doing um, some other events uh, in San Francisco, not, not at bookstores. Uh, you know, the bookstores don't want me, but we found some other venues and we're trying to figure out ways to bring readers in. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's worked out. I can't complain. You know, it would, feel, it would feel very ungrateful for me to complain about my situation. But I do think that it's, it's sad that bookstores seem to have an agenda as far as who they're willing to invite. Well, there are booksellers that subscribe to my Substack and and will listen to this podcast. So uh, if they're listening, that is uh, an interesting thing for them to contemplate. Um, I want to end on this. You write very movingly. You write about your Yale graduation dinner with your mother and your sister. And uh, you just had to leave one restaurant to go to another one because the places around Yale were doing these really expensive set menus. And in that dinner, the New York Times calls to tell you that you are running a piece of yours. This is sort of like the absolute elite moment of like, ah, this is the perfect ending. But you don't, you don't covet what other people covet. I was just thinking about this with Roland Fryer's interview the other day with Barry Weiss, that you say that actually um, in that moment that, that you would trade all of it to have had a more stable upbringing. Talk to me a little bit to close about, about what that moment meant and, and what you want people to understand about that. Yeah, so that was uh, in, the, in the penultimate chapter, closing off with my graduation at Yale. And, you know, I'd, I'd submitted this op-ed to the New York Times. So I attended this veterans writing workshop at Columbia University. It was a one-week writing seminar for military veterans. And one of the guest speakers at this seminar was uh, Jim Dow, who was then the op-ed editor at the Times. And he, like, I spoke with him very briefly after one of the classes and he gave me his card and he was like, Hey, if you have anything you're writing, send it my way. And I did. And, um, so to my surprise, they took it. And then fast forward to graduation day. Yeah. It was like, my, my mom was so proud. My sister, everyone just like, you know, being the first in my family to graduate from college. And then in the middle of the dinner, I get this call from the New York times saying, Hey, we ran your online you know, we ran the online version today, the print version is going up tomorrow, and I'm outside of the restaurant. And, you know, I'm facing Yale. And behind me is my family, and I can see them through the window pane. And, you know, I, I was happy that they were running it, you know, a little bit nervous, uh, because I do write about my early life experiences and some of my thoughts. And, you know, the idea that the that this would be widely available for anyone to read was a little bit scary. But, you know, I wanted people to hear about these experiences that they may not otherwise be exposed to people who read outlets like the New York Times. But as I'm speaking with this editor, and I'm looking at my family, and I'm realizing like, you know, it's this is great. This is a kind of it's a it's a, a special day. Um, but I thought about all the family dinners that we used to have as a kid, it was sort of, you know, I write about in the book, there were very brief and intermittent moments of stability. And those were my favorite periods of my childhood. And I realized, yeah, I would have traded Yale and Cambridge and this op-ed and all of the accomplishments over the last few years to have just uh, gone back and had more of those family dinners and had a more sort of stable, conventional childhood. You know, it's funny. I, sometimes I, you know, people will hear about my life and they'll say, you know, yeah, but didn't it um, shape your, didn't, didn't, it, didn't it make you stronger, make it more resilient, didn't it? 
you know, make you a more interesting and person or something. And I remember this quote I read a few years ago, this guy who had a difficult life and someone said this to him, you know, didn't, didn't it strengthen your character, you know, going through all these difficult experiences. And this guy responded something along the lines of like, you know, I would, I would give up a, a, a bit of character to have had a better life. Um, and I, I remember reading that and it, it really uh, helped to make things click for me that, you know, I would have traded all of these accomplishments to have had a more uh, stable and typical childhood. I don't think the trade-off was really worth it. If you can even think of it in those terms, I do write later in the book that most people who live the life that I had early on don't have this nice ending and that, you know, whatever, whatever response and feeling and sympathy, I guess, that people felt while reading those early chapters of my book, that I'd, I'd wa I want people to take those feelings and channel them towards kids who are living in those circumstances today and who, statistically speaking, won't go to college. They won't have this kind of conventional path of success. And so it was important for me to, to I guess, what, remind the reader of that. Well, this is such a powerful book. I'm so thrilled that you had the time to come on and talk about it today. Uh, thank you so much for the book, Rob, and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Sarah. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.